Hello, Small Fortune listeners. Welcome to episode 12. My name is Carol Collison. I'm a partner in Global Wine Partners. We're a wine industry M&A firm. I realize I almost never say my name. We don't have my email address on our episode notes. So in case you're wondering who's this Carol person, it's Carol Collison. And if you want to know a little bit more about what I've been doing in the wine industry for a bit, you can uh, go to our episode one. The Hopefully we're improving our sound quality. That one's one of our first episodes by definition. And hopefully we've come a bit bit further in our the quality of our audio. At any rate, today we are speaking with Russ Weiss, and we've decided to do a double header because Russ and I had planned to and did have this interview, which was a conversation about why he has or what his philosophy has been that has led him to this somewhat unusual in very high level management positions in the wine business. So whether you are somebody wanting that kind of a career, there's plenty of people I think who enjoy moving to new jobs and new challenges. But if longevity is of interest to you, you should listen to this. And if you're interested in hiring somebody and having them stick around, this might be interesting as well. So this is that conversation. But the day that we had it was also a day that the BW166 slash GFA slash John Mara Marco released some data that have has raised a lot of concerns in the industry around what is going on with the 2023 shipment results that occurred in the wholesale markets in the wine industry. We decided to do a second one. Please listen to that. It's quick and dirty, but Russ has lots of fantastic ideas. So that's episode 13. Thanks for listening. Today, we are speaking with Russ Weiss, who became president of Walsh Vineyard Management in 2022, after a long career managing wine companies. He, Before joining Walsh, he was president of Silverado Vineyards for 18 years, and prior to that, he was at Robert Mondavi Winery for almost 10 years as senior VP of International Business Development. One of the reasons I asked him to join us today is because of that resume of longevity, nearly 30 years and only two jobs. So often I observe people that rise to senior management levels in the wine business, and then they just, it's many jobs in the same time period. And so it's obviously really hard to manage a closely held company, a closely held family company. The wine business is its own special kind of hard. So I invited Russ to join us and maybe share his secrets to being successful and having longevity in his positions in management. And I think it's maybe a bit of a spoiler alert. You will find that he is probably part of the key to success is he's extremely well-spoken and charming. So I think that's probably part of the mix. But Russ, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's an enormous pleasure, but but I got to say thanks also for putting all that pressure on me to be charming. <laughs> uh, now that you've advertised that, I feel this desperate need to do that. It's going to be painful. That's okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm looking out for my listeners. Let's start from the beginning. How did you end up in the wine business? How did you start in the wine business? Well, so people never get this answer because it seems very flip, but the honest answer is curiosity and luck. I was curious about a lot of things and wine seemed something that you could be, seemed like something that you could be endlessly curious about. And so once I had, I'm not sure I even figured that out necessarily so intellectually, but somewhere in my amygdala, when <laughs> I had figured that out, I just kept knocking on doors with my useless resume until somebody gave me a job. And that's where the lucky part came in because I was here in the valley of the mid eighties and 
in the mid eighties, nobody woke up with a fantastic degree from a fantastic university and said, you know what I'm going to do? Cause I'm going to make <laughs> bank. I'm going to, I'm going to go to the wine business. Nobody even really, it's funny. It's funny to think about the eighties as some sort of paleolithic era, but nobody was really, if you dumped all the talent in a box, it didn't slide down to the wine business at that point. And so I was just very lucky to be in a spot where curiosity and hard work were the prerequisites rather than a I don't know, a Harvard degree or something like that, which I did not have. I, I know that Vic Motto, I think he, the partner and founder of our little firm here, Global Wine Partners, he, I believe, came in. He's you know quite a bit older than you, but he got into the wine business about the same time. And he has the same experience was that yeah. it was still a very much a cottage industry at that time. And, and they were happy to have any anybody with talent that was ready, willing and able to Right. Jump in. Yeah. And the luck that curiosity didn't come out of nowhere. I grew up in the middle of 200 acres of grapes oh. and was endlessly fascinated. Our ranch out in the middle of Madera in the Madera County in the Central Valley was actually one of the spots that for raisins, UC Davis was doing experimental trials on. So my dad was a very progressive guy, the best farmer that I, I will ever know. Mm. And, and so I got to a very early age, follow these guys around and ask them what they were doing in the vineyard as they were looking at the morphology of the vine over the season and, and how that impacts sugar development. So at a very early age, I thought this is a, this is some sort of a miracle, really. What, <laughs> how does this plant do this thing? It's amazing. And so I, the curiosity didn't, I, it didn't come from nowhere. It came from my, my family's, my family's business. All right. So you're Growing up in Madeira, you're watching your dad farm a substantial mm -hmm. amount of agricultural land. Then what? How did you, in 93, I've got you, your resume, you were at, at Mandavi at quite a high level. How'd you get from the tractor to the international <laughs> VP? <laughs> Sometimes that's the Chinese parable where the, the guy's son breaks his leg and everybody thinks he's unlucky because he can't get out the rice paddy, but then the army comes by and wants to draft him. They can't take a guy with a broken leg. So how lucky are you to break your leg? Yeah. My, my family's farm went through the same kind of upheaval that a lot of family farms did in the early, early to mid eighties and had to shrink a little bit. My brother was already on the ranch. So I, I was invited to test the free agency market and, <laughs> and my sister happened to be up here in Napa and I was like couch surfing and she was wondering if I was going to start paying for the milk or whatever. And, and that being up here was amazing because it was an era when all, all of what we think now of as storied brands were really just establishing themselves. And, and so I just. I started knocking on doors. Oh, this is so great. Here's this connection to, to what I grew up in with vineyards, but also this sort of uh, really fascinating beverage that how does, how do you go from something that's made out of grapes into something that smells like strawberries? It's right. The winery that gave me my first job by a total accident uh, was the Christian brothers. Oh, yeah. And I think that, I mean, again, it's one of those, I started, studied computer sciences, not as a major, but it, just because I was curious about it in my undergraduate. And my first, like my first big break was that they got a word processor, but nobody knew what to do with it. Okay. So my vast experience in the library, the basement of the library in my undergraduate with the Wang computer was parlayed into actually doing the first ever tasting note 
for Christian Brothers on a on a word processor. It was like that's, cool. I mean, that's how that's the wild west that it was out here. It's if you could just if you were curious about something and could figure it out, and then suddenly, then you're now you're in charge of tasting notes. Okay, <laughs> so, yeah. you're IT. Which, you know, which is a funny thing to be in charge of because you have it's technical writing. You're asking wine winemakers to say something, and and they'll tell you they'll tell you what they're doing. But if you try to translate that for the consumer, nobody would know what you're talking about. A lot of what we do in, in marketing is actually trying to make a story out of a very highly technical series of chemical reactions. <laughs> it's out of desperation, not knowing how to describe all of us in that, in the mar- on the marketing side, out of desperation, not knowing how to describe it in any other way, toss our hands up and end up forcing the consumer to learn things. Now, this is malolactic fermentation. It's like, <laughs> Like we could, we couldn't describe it, so we had we just had to force the consumer to understand what our shorthand was on that. Yeah. So, which is the beginning of my basic a, a theory that has followed me all of my life, which is that for fine wine, whether they like it or not, or we like it or not, production is marketing. I, that's okay. what you talk about. Hey. In the '80s and '90s, early 2000s, that that production was all about the winemaking. And starting in the 2000s and ever since, that's really become about the farming. Uh-huh. People stopped thinking so much about, about the hero that is the winemaker and started to think about the hero that is the, the vineyard site. Right. Uh, now, Andy Beckstoffer, where did he come in on that? Huge ambassador for that concept. Yes. Right. And and obviously there's obviously we we that's not a new thing. I think since the Romans decided that. Falernian wine was the best wine. Terroir has been following us around. But in terms of the nascent market in the US, it took us a little while to to get there. Got it. And then so tell me about Mondavi and in with respect to you did 10 years there. I think there were probably a few more steps between yeah, just, work, just work before, processing. Right. And, and, just and Mondavi, before, but just before I get off of the Christian Brothers, it ended up being purchased by a company called Hubline that got purchased by a company called IDV. And I had a fantastic boss there, a guy named Bill Angster. And that's another thing that's followed me around all of my life. You you asked, you teed this up at the beginning. It was like, how on earth do you stay at two places in a whole career? Like, what abnormality <laughs> right, happened? But one of the things that Bill was always really clear on when I was such a young, eager, eager beaver and wanted to do stuff and wanted to be promoted and saw other things that looked fascinating that I had no business doing and no qualifications for. But nevertheless, the boldness to ask him, I, I want well, that job. Yeah, why not? Bill always said, Russ, it's great that you want things for you. Try to want things for the company. Oh, and that that was so profound because like we sometimes forget why we're there. It's ah, I've got the best job in the world. Yeah, but does the winery have the best person for the job? <laughs> Try to remember what, what the point is here, right? And, and so I just owe him everything for that focus, that idea that you need to want something for the enterprise that you're in. And I left Hubline because I no longer wanted anything for Hubline. Uh, I couldn't, they, they wanted me to do stuff. And some of it was in the spirits division. And I'm sure it would have been a a terrific experience and and an amazing journey for me, but I couldn't see myself wanting anything in that regard. Okay. So I was looking for, if you do it right, you're looking for 
an enterprise that has the sort of same joy and fascination that you have with whatever they're doing. So it wasn't an accident that I got over to Mandavi. I was utterly fascinated by Bob and Mike and Tim and what they were doing and utterly, utterly in love. I was in love with their wines. I think that's that you, in my whole life, I've gotten resumes from people saying, I've always dreamed of being in the wine business. I've never once gotten a resume and I probably, I don't know what I would have done. I might've hired them, a person on the spot. If they had sent me a resume, it said, I drink gobs of your wine and I just, I love it. There you go. Okay. Now we got something. Now we have something in common, right? So yeah. So that's how. Before I just jump out of the Christian, yeah, by all means, that that was a profound lesson from Bill Angster. Want something for the enterprise, not just yourself. And try. And it's great if those are aligned. If it's great if you know what you want for yourself and what you want for the enterprise are all lined up and and take you both places. But but that that I think that has always been. That's always served me well in terms of my longevity. Yeah, that's it's a simple. It, simple does not mean it's shallow. Yeah. <laughs> it can be very profound yeah. and useful yeah. advice. And I, I appreciate you sharing that. I think that's really meaningful story. So yeah, Tim, so, Tim right, and Robert and right. So I got I was I happened to be on some committees at the Wine Institute and and Mike Mandavi happened to be on some of those committees and we struck up a, an acquaintance and and there were some other folks over there that I'd worked with in the past and, and they needed somebody to fix a few things in their international markets. And my name came up and it was funny. It's, uh, <laughs> it's one of those, huh? w- when do I start? <laughs> like, like, do you mean it? Cause let's get this thing going. Like, don't you want to know the salaries? No, I don't, I don't care what the salary is. Let's go. Let's go. Let's do this thing. And I, I think that's the other thing is I never really, I always felt like if you really were doing something that that you were passionate about, the rest of it's going to come along. The rest of it follows. And and I've been really lucky that way. So yeah, I hopped over to Mandavi and, and wandered around Asia for them for about a year. And then and then went over to Opus One for a little bit, which was incredible. And, and then came back to run the entire international business development thing. For- and the resume says 93. So did you join before they went public? Right after, yeah, right, it's as before, it seems like. Yeah, no, it was before. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. right. It, we, they were in process, right? Got it. Yeah. So what are the, the lessons you learned in that role in terms of either, that was a pretty rambunctious period of time <laughs> in that enterprise. How did you, what were some of the ways, the challenges or. The, I have, obviously, I think one of the most, po- let's start with a positive, right? Hmm. Which is that I've never met a family so driven. And with so much energy to see things through. I mean, you think about, when you think about Tim, who was just relentlessly about the quality of the wine. Yeah, we were making fantastic wine. So it's hard for me to imagine as a huge fan of Mandavi, what more you could do to make it even more delicious. But Tim was absolutely focused like a laser beam on that. And the entire team that he, you think about all the winemakers that, that, Tim's gifted to the entire industry. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of the folks who went and worked with him and for him. What an amazing thing. And then Michael, just so driven to, to understand his customer, which at the time was mostly a wholesaler, and what they need. What do you need from it? What can we do to help you with the storytelling that you have to do on our behalf? 
that was just amazing. And of course, the story was Bob himself. And so that that was just to follow Bob around the world. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Just incredible. So the energy, the sort of absolute never give up, never stop, continuous improvement thing, they were the embodiment of that concept. And so I don't think it's any accident that was the success it was. They were focused and everybody around them was focused. There was a culture that they built. So that, the two things there, that that continuous improvement, but also that you have to build a culture that's into that and, mm. and that, mm -hmm. that wants to do that, that's sort of relentless about it, was just awesome. I, I will say that what you learn from, from being publicly traded, what you learn from that kind of growth, the growth was... <laughs> mind-blowing <laughs> i learned things that i knew theoretically but had never really felt personally which is the old phrase that growth eats cash mm. oh my lord growth eats cash if you if you're especially lucky especially in the wine business yeah especially if you're lucky enough to have that remember that you're in a capital intensive business and you're going to need to pay for stuff and you're going to need a banker <laughs> yeah, no, you're paying for stuff you won't right. see revenues on right. for a couple of years. Yeah. It's that that sort of that that very practical, very down-to-earth advice. Call your yeah. banker. Yeah, there you <laughs> hey, go. This has happened to me. It's a good thing, I think, but I'm insolvent. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doubling this year. So I yes, am therefore yes. insolvent. So I think that very simple, again, simple advice, but don't forget that your team is not just the team that that is in the enterprise but all the teams that are out there supporting the enterprise from your supply chain to your from your material supply chain to your money supply chain really critical so yeah, yeah that kind of growth really taught me that there there's a cost of complexity and there's a cost to growth and you need to account for that yeah no that's what small fortune podcast is about it's like it's about the business and how hard it is but it's also yeah. about everybody in and around it. And as you say, the bankers, and, and here we are talking about professional management, which is right. so important to, at the right time, if you can do it as an entrepreneur, bring in professional managers. And if you can find somebody like Russ, who's, you know, is, who's the right match and is going to uh, take care of what you need and, and stick around because everybody knows turnover is so expensive. Anything else you wanted to share on the Robert Mondavi or do we get on to your 18 years at Silverado? No, obviously, yeah. I, I could probably write a book about it. Uh, I actually think I think a fair, pe fair amount of people have written books yeah, about yeah. it. So, <laughs> I don't know if I have a whole lot to add to that, just that it was a huge, I mean, it was so fun. It was oh. so fun. I mean, it, when you're, they talk, I don't know, because I, I never played team sports because I'm terrible at all of them as much as I think I'm not, um, but never got to that level. They talk about flow, right? Where, oh yeah. Where a team is just like, you just know what the other, your teammates are doing and you're, you know, can anticipate. Uh, I, there was just such a flow there. It was just an amazing thing to be part of. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. And then, so well, yeah, then, then which, uh, owned by Ron and yeah. Diane Miller at the time. I never met them, but I understand very energetic people. The same thing that you encountered with Robert Mondavi. Correct. And not just Ron and Diane, but their kids and just an amazing family. And, yeah. and but I think the biggest shock for me with Ron and Diane is that 
is that coming out of an environment where you're on a quarterly call with analysts talking about your bottom line and then going to Silverado where bottom line was one of the things that they were interested in, but not maybe the first thing. Mm -hmm. It was an indicator that they were successful at something. It was a key performance indicator, but it wasn't the beginning and ending of stuff. Diane was so concerned about the, the gracious, welcoming hospitality that we could deliver at the winery. She was so concerned about the wines being absolutely delicious. So her focus, and it's easier to do when you're in, a, in an enterprise that's that intimate, that coming out of Robert and Dobby, we learned about our customers by doing massive consumer studies and focus groups. At, at Silverado, you learn about your consumer by going down to the tasting room and hanging out for an hour. Right. And I, my favorite story about that was I happened to be leaving the winery through a different route. There were all kind of, that place was just beautiful, but it had all these little places that you could go in and out of. The, so I came out of it, downstairs thing through the elevator shaft tunnel or whatever. I, I popped out of this, out of the, the bottom part of the winery. And uh, there was a couple on their way out to their car and, and they were lugging their little boxes of wine. And I said, Hey, can I help you with that? And but I'm taking their boxes out to the car and this couple were just like this was such an amazing experience it was every the staff is just incredible just from the beautiful person that greeted us to the down to your gardener your gardener is amazing and by the way i think it's incredible that you are not ageist around here that you will hire folks of any age to do any job and such a knowledge or person about gardening but then when we started talking to her about the winery just so knowledgeable about the wines and just so gracious. I don't know how you've done it here as the president, but how have you put this incredible team together that top to bottom, including your gardener, is so amazing. I said, there wouldn't be like a smallish, super energetic woman that like, oh yeah, very, yeah, actually, yeah. But bouncing all over, she was up on the terraces and we were a little bit worried about her. We thought she'd fall over, but she was fantastic and planting bulbs <laughs> up there. Yeah. No, you were talking to the owner. That's where that knowledge comes from. That's yeah. So they were very, very hands-on, very hands-on, but very modest about her role. And Ron was the same way too. What a, what an amazing business mind and incredible help, uh, incredible for me, just source of wisdom and knowledge and experience coming out of his years as uh, CEO at Disney. Uh, yeah, I was going to say for yeah. our listeners, yeah. <laughs> yeah. just mention. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. So Diana's daughter of Walt Disney. And, and yes. Chris, yeah, Ron ran the company for a while, but very humble about, about that and about them being in the wine business, which they were in because they loved it. And yeah, and I, I, I met their, their kids. Yeah. And it doesn't surprise me at all to hear that because the kids are also, for folks who are blessed in many ways, they are also extremely down to earth, which was charming. So from that, from that, I think one of the, one of the, one of the great, one of the great reminders in that is that uh, everything, everything matters. I, and particularly uh, Diane always reminded me that, that flavor matters. I think we sometimes in fine wine, we forget that in fine wine. We have, we want to, we want we want the flavor to matter to a very specific set of people. 
But outside of that, if you're, but I'm not sure how much reviews are that relevant anymore, but we used to really worry about them. Right now, I think the biggest influencer is, is the psalm. And so we, we want the flavor to matter to a psalm and we want the story to matter to a psalm. But in fact, it actually has to matter a little bit beyond that. And so it, it was interesting to me to, to have Diane in the tastings and she had wines that she liked and wines that she just didn't like that we made. And she was always reminding us that this thing needs to be better. I don't think it's very delicious. Mm -hmm. And she used the word delicious a lot, which is not coming out of Madavi. We, we had all kinds of ways to describe wine. I, one of the words that we never used was delicious, which is funny. It's obviously, yeah. I guess it was just an assumption, but Diane didn't want it to be an assumption. She wanted it to be out in the open. This has to be really tasty. And, and we worked on a lot of wines with that in mind. And I think when you think about the success we had, particularly with our little stealth wine, the Sauvignon Blanc, people were just mad about that. They were mm -hmm. just mad about it. And, I, and it was because it was Diane's favorite wine. And she spent a lot of time thinking about deliciousness. And, yeah, and, and what I and I hear from this transition from Mandavi to Silverado, and maybe the reason you were successful in both and managed that transition is you did not get in, come into Silverado with what was important to Mondavi and bang your fist on the table and say, yeah, here's hey, how it's got to go. You guys are doing it yeah. wrong. <laughs> you were congruent with her and Ron's emphasis on profit, sure, but deliciousness yeah. first. And, and that's got to be part of the key. Now, we, we're, we're towards the end of our time here. There are Two separate things that I wanted to cover, but I'll let you interviewee's choice. We could segue to your experience moving to Walsh and how that feels compared to the differences between running a, a farming company versus wine company, or we could talk about um, your experience as an entrepreneur in Priorat. So you choose. Uh, <laughs> they're both, I, I guess the it the pre-rat thing I can actually do really quickly, which okay, is which is you know the 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 big lesson from pre-rat is that you should never be your own focus group of one. Oh, very wise. <laughs> Wiser words were never spoken in the wine business. Yeah, there I am. There I am. I love pre-rat. Yeah, who's not gonna love this? How about? nearly everybody and there's always <laughs> also the timing right and also listen we forget how complex and disparate the wine business actually is yeah. and there are whole people that we don't know about making wines in the country of georgia and selling them to azerbaijan or whatever yeah. that we don't even know about we just don't know about it and so i think the challenge is that if you're really good at something try to imagine that even a slight difference in whatever that something is might mean that you're really bad at it <laughs> right everybody i knew was in the fine wine business for california fine wine so i went off and made a really expensive wine from spain from a very small appellation that was made out of grenache mostly and I got to tell you, first two years were like falling off a log. All of my friends all around the world were like, Russ, this is awesome. Wow. And what a great was. Delicious was. Terrific. The only problem is everybody that called them was calling them to get the California wines from them. Mm -hmm. And nobody would think if they wanted a Spanish wine to call them. Got it. So, 
<laughs> there you were. <laughs> so I, 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 I parked my convertible that I wanted to sell with the top down up in Fargo, North Dakota. And for some reason, nobody wanted to buy that. Hey, nobody would think, <laughs> Hey, I know where I need to go to buy a convertible. Yeah. So of. yeah, I just parked it. I parked it in the wrong spot. And, and I, and I was, you're meeting the distributors. You, you yeah. Those relationships. Importers you around from, the importers yeah. around the world. Distributors. Okay. Yeah. Just, okay. it just didn't even occur to me. That wouldn't work. So charm was <laughs> is insufficient. Well, uh, element. And, and this is where having friends is easier. You're mixing stuff. You got, got you know, you. They, God bless them. They, they like me and they were helping. I got you. So nobody okay. stopped and said, yeah, you're out of your mind. I can't sell that. I'll buy it from you. I can't sell it. Three years from now, I'm going to have to tell you that I can't sell it. Oh boy. Well, yeah. I'm sure you had many a fine trip to Spain. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, we did sell. I mean, you know, we did. And that's, and it's of course an age old lesson too, that to tell me about your passion and tell me about your energy. Tell me about your money because I, we just ran out of money. It's just, yeah. but it took us 15 years to run out of money. So that's good. That's, that's a success. Bad. Yeah. yeah it's, it's the wine business. It's small wines fortunes are, are made. Are, yeah. Wines were great. I had a lot of tax-free paella. It was good. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> so to wrap up, you started as a farmer. You were raised by the best farmer you've ever yeah. Uh, known. And yeah. here you are. You're a young man, so this may not be your last gig, but you're here at a Walsh Vineyard Management. Well, if my average tenure is any indicator, it, it yeah, could this be. Will be so, your last yeah, right. Yes. So, uh, yeah. So how different is this? I, I think that in some ways it's, in some ways it's very different because obviously we're not, we're not making the end, end product. We're making what you can imagine could be the end product. And, mm -hmm. but I think that some things haven't changed and we started this conversation with production equals marketing. And so in, in many senses, we are, we are part of the marketing to, oh, we're doing that right now. We've got a little baby doll sheep out in front of a winery just today. We oh. took our sheep out today. They're out doing some, some, some bucolic pastoral <laughs> imaging. I got right. you. Yeah. And of course it's funny because the, the, production team at the wineries. Yeah, great. Yeah, get going, whatever. And of course the the marketing teams, what are they coming? What <laughs> a lot more conversations with the marketing team than I do with the production team on when the sheep are showing up. Uh, I think also in in a more serious vein, that's the shift that we need to do just generally because wine has always existed in a permission environment, but those that permission has been more more around TTB and alcohol regulations and the idea that you're really working with a controlled substance. But we are now in a moment where social permission has really expanded into what are you doing with the environment? What is it while you're doing that? What is your carbon footprint? And how are you treating your team members? How are you treating those fantastic vineyardists that are doing all the real work? Are they getting a living wage? Can I be proud? that this wine that I'm, that I really like, do I have permission to like it because the way you've created it is appropriate wow. and, and fits my values. And so as farm managers, we are ground zero of that. Yeah. Absolutely ground zero of that. And so we need, we, we need to be superlative partners, not only in the stuff that we 
think we know how to do as farmers, but also in terms of making sure that the story that our clients have to tell is the one that their customers need to hear. And so that, that has changed the approach a bit. And I also, the other side of that is that cost a little bit more and those types of regenerative organic behaviors can add to cost. And so we, rather than just throwing up our hands and saying to our clients, there, there it is. <laughs> we need to be their business partners as well. Trying to think of ways that we can, we can be more efficient. We can use, we can see if we can use some of this technology to do a couple of things at once so that we're trying to it'll reduce the amount of time that we're actually in the vineyard, which reduces the overall per acre cost. And so yeah, I'd be a good example of that is that if you, if sheep can't stay in the vineyard forever, because at some point they start eating the leaves and the fruit. So you got to be careful about the timing of that. The later passes on, on weed control might also be something that you can do to do mechanical suckering because all of the little branches that come off the, the trunk of the vine don't need to be there and detract from the quality. They detract energy from the fruit zone, which is what really makes the quality at the end of the day. So if you can send a piece of equipment in there, that's going underneath the row and not only taking care of the weeds horizontally, but taking care of the suckering vertically, you're saving another pass of either people or some machine. And, and those passes are expensive, you know, it sounds like you've landed in a fantastic spot for this next act. Uh, yeah, I love it. I, I, I love it again. And it's something else to be super curious about and super excited about and helps me put together what I, my great empathy for our clients. Has. Yeah. <laughs> on the other side. I, I've been on the other side and I know what, I, I really know what they want. I really deeply understand what they want. <laughs> and so to, to try to see if we can't, uh, be better at delivering that in so many ways that, that, that they don't, my clients don't wake up one morning and say, how can I make things really difficult for the people caring for our vineyards? They, they are either regulatory or consumer attitudinally. They are, they have to do it. Mm -hmm. And so I don't regard that as a problem. I regard that as uh, totally appropriate and good for the planet and good for everybody. And so let's just roll up our sleeves and see what we can do to Thank make you. that, make the wines better and make the way we make them better. Fantastic. Russ, this has been super fun. I really it's, appreciate you joining me. Yeah. It's a natural act to, to talk about myself for a half an hour, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I was confident that you were going to deliver and you did. Hi, Small Fortune listeners. If you found this episode enjoyable, we'd really love to have you as a follower. And we're on almost all of your favorite podcast platforms. So if you could take a moment and subscribe or follow, we'd really appreciate it. Also, if you have any questions for Carol, please email us at smallfortunepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks. I would say this is proof that I'm not in my pajamas, but now that I look at the shirt, I'm not sure. That's a distinction without a difference. I'm not sure. Yeah, that's your farmer outfit, <laughs> plaid. When you really get hardcore, you got to wear the plaid with the short sleeves. Yeah, pla plaid flannel. Yeah, yeah but long sleeves <laughs> is not nice. short. You know what I'm talking about. My dad the is buttons. the farmer. I do. I do. My do, dad, you, do you have my, wranglers? Is the believe it or question. not, my, da my dad, my dad 
didn't really like short sleeves, <sighs> but he didn't really like long sleeves. And so he was always rolling his cuffs up and <laughs> it, he had it. He he ended up cutting his shirt shirts off and hemming them. Oh, and my mom was like, "I'm not doing that." <laughs> Wise woman. So there he is. Yeah. So he cut all of his shirts to his desired. I, I don't even know what that. I used to tease him mercilessly about it because it's dad. What is that? It's like the capri pant of, of shirts, or and, you the know, untuck it of shirts. Yeah, and so for for an honest to God, and he really was an honest to God farmer, it just seemed a little precious. Just a (laughs) little capri the capri shirt. Yeah, it's 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 a capri shirt. (laughs) (laughs) It's farming with flair. It absolutely was farming with flair. Farming with flair. I love it. And and then of course all the neighbors would be like, Hey Rod, where'd you get that shirt? That's incredible. And and he'd say, Yeah, you like it? It's like, no, it. no, it's incredible. I don't like it. <laughs> it is incredible. <laughs> I love it.